Welcome to How to Sell an Agency, the podcast sharing stories of founders who built and sold agency businesses. I'm your host, Matt Bennett. I'm a built and sold agency founder myself and now work helping other agency leaders as an advisor, mentor, and non-exec. Today, I'm joined by Trenton Moss, a name you may be familiar with through his books, workshops, as well as his business, Team Sturker, that delivers client leadership skills to agency teams. Trenton kindly agreed to come on the podcast and share his own agency story. I started by asking him to tell us about Web Credible, the business he sold in 2018, and what that looked like immediately before the sale. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, yeah, we were a, a UX specialist business, and I founded the business back in 2003, and lots of ups and downs, bit of a roller coaster ride. And after 15 years, we were acquired by a development agency. So there was a real synergy there. And actually, a lot of the UX specialists ended up selling to development mm-hmm. agencies. At the time, those sort of businesses were trying to transition into being more strategic partners to their clients. And development businesses generally came from a background of there's a salesperson and then they sell something and then the project manager runs the project and delivers it to the client. What would you like, Mr. Client or Mrs. Client? And then we deliver it. And they really wanted to shift themselves to being more strategic partners to their clients and to get involved more in the strategy, research, design, all the UX stuff. And so we were acquired by a, a development company and it was a very good fit. There was a real synergy there and the two businesses basically merged. What, what size were you at that point? Were you, was it yeah. a team in one building? Yeah, or, we were just in know. one building. We were about a three million pound business. Mm-hmm. So about 25 full-time people. And then we, we would, we had a flex model. So in our really busy periods, we would be up to 35 to 40 people. And then in our quieter people, we would go down to 25. We were 30 before that, but then we decided to move to our flex model so that we could, when we had quieter moments, we would have a slightly smaller team. Were you always UX only? Because if you started in 2003 and you were UX only, we've discussed on the podcast before, most of us were huge generalists at that point. So were you UX from the start? Yeah, we were always a UX specialist. So when we started, there were probably about five or six agencies just niching, specializing Mm -hmm. in UX. And probably for the first 10 years of the business, it was was quite specialist and quite niche. Mm -hmm. There weren't too many businesses doing UX. And then after around 10 years, it started to go quite mainstream. Mm -hmm. And eventually everyone started offering it. But certainly at the beginning, yeah, we were niche and we mostly kept to that niche. I'm not sure I even, we were aware of some of the principles of UX, but UX as a discipline, I'm not, I I don't know if I was even aware of it back in 2000. Very few people were, which I quite, which was quite nice. So it could be a bit frustrating because it was hard to get budgets signed off because no one knew what it was. But at the same time, it was a bit easier to win pitches because we could go in and pitch and agencies would go in and pitch and talk about the creative and so on. And we would go in and say, we're going to talk to your users and we're going to find out the problems they have and the needs that they have and the goals they're trying to achieve. Yeah. And then we're going to design something based around those and in line with your business goals. And so we were quite different yeah. when we pitched and in a good way. And then for the last five years where UX went very mainstream, we were very happy because suddenly budgets were bigger. Yeah. But then careful what you wish for, because everyone suddenly was offering UX. It became incredibly competitive and incredibly commoditized. And so pitching became 
a bit of a charade in the end because we're all the same. We're all going in and presenting the same solution and got a similar price and going to go about the job in the same way. So you could say to the client, as long as they've got three good agencies to pitch, you could say, do you know what? It doesn't really matter who you choose. We're all going to deliver it in the same way for roughly the same price in working with you in a similar way. And you know what? If all three of us are super busy right now, depending on which one you chose, we'd probably all get the same freelancer in to deliver it anyway. (laughs) I think there's probably quite a lot of people out there facing that exact situation today. There is because many, many agencies are a bit afraid to niche. Yeah. Because, and it's, I think it was Steve Jobs who said this, where he said, he was more proud of the things that he said no to than the things that he actually did. And in terms of strategy for your business, it's easy to say the things you're going to do, but it's much harder to say the things you're not going to do. And if you try and be a jack of all trades, full service, yeah, yeah. we'll work with anyone, then you don't really stand out and it becomes a bit of a race to the bottom then. I think talking to agency leaders who've had some success, quite often that moment of deciding, actually, we're going to start saying no to stuff. That's really a pivotal point in many business journeys, isn't it? Because as you say, suddenly you get a reputation for doing a thing. You become more distinct and you become better at that thing as well. But you didn't do that the way most people do it, which is, do you know what? We're going to do everything. We're going to end up doing too many things badly. And then we're going to find, slowly learn and focus down. You did it right from the outset. So where, where did the idea of a UX agency come from? It was completely random. So I'd never had a proper grown up job before. So after I finished uni, I took about three and a half years out to go traveling and working abroad. And then while I was working in Japan, actually, I was teaching English in a Japanese high school for a couple of years and had a bit of time on my hands. So I started learning a little bit about websites. And I stumbled across a website of a guy called Jacob Nielsen, who in the UX world is is (laughs) the OG of user experience. And I found his stuff fascinating. So I just read loads of it. I found it really interesting. And then as we were traveling... We went overland from Japan, crossed into Asia, and then traveled around Asia and then got the Trans-Siberian train back through Russia and had a lot of thinking time because the Trans-Siberian train takes quite some time. It's like a seven-day journey. And for the last leg of it, we were on the train for 78 hours, like three full days. And once you've looked at Siberia for, I don't know, 20 seconds, (laughs) a minute... It's the same for the next three days. The the view doesn't change. So I had a lot of thinking time and I just started writing out some thoughts and ideas for a business. Yeah, I could do a user experience business. Matt, it was totally random. And I got back to England and I was in a, I was young. I was 25. I was in a a house share. There was no space in my bedroom for a, a desk. So I put a desk in the hallway and got a phone line and made a website and, and away I went. I mean, it was really random. And if I knew even like 1% of what I know now, I wouldn't have done it. It was madness. But I didn't know what I didn't know. And that naivety and enthusiasm got me through and just managed to get some clients after a while. And I was doing good stuff with them, like low level stuff for a few hundred quid here and there, but it was adding value to them. And I gradually built on that. So that's tip one, is it? Develop your agency concept on a vision journey through (laughs) Siberia. Yeah. Trains are great for thinking. Every time I'm on a train, particularly like the routes I take, there's never any mobile signal. You come away with a clarity Uh, of thought on something. It's because there's something in our brains called the imagination network. And that's where all of our kind of creativity and our best ideas come from. And the only time that the imagination network gets activated when you're doing nothing. And that's why you have your best ideas in the shower or when you go jogging or on the train when there's no phone reception. So no internet, what am I going to do? And and the problem we have nowadays is we have very little downtime because where we used to have downtime, we now have our phones. 
Yeah, and we do, we're removing it all the time, aren't we? So yeah. starting from a desk in the hallway, 2003, 15-year journey. Yeah. So probably a bit of a roller coaster through that time. Yes. You know what? You went through dot-com crashes, bubbles bursting, previous recessions, whatever random things were specific to your business as well. So Wanley, where do you think your resilience came from? Where do you think you did well through that decade and a half and grew rather than floundered like many would? I guess I, my vision from the start was always to make myself redundant. Mm -hmm. To be honest, the, mission, the vision from the start was like, can I get this going, yeah. basically? Can I get a job out of this? I, I was very badly behaved at school. So I don't think I was ever designed to be in an institution. Yeah. So I think that's probably what drove me to starting my own business and ultimately being self-employed during my main adult life. So one, once it got established and it looked like it was a viable entity, yeah, all I cared about was making myself redundant. So it was like, who can I hire who's really smarter X, who can do Y job, so therefore I don't have to. And, and gradually, and it took a while. I pretty much got there by the end. I had an awesome MD. And by the end, I, I wasn't really involved in the business day to day. I was the face of the business. I was the person who was out there running communities, leading on some of our bigger pitches. But the day to day stuff mm. in the business, I wasn't so involved in. So I think that was my big thing was my ambition was make myself redundant from this business. And I think if I almost succeeded, I don't think I did entirely. I think if I would have been hit by a bus on one of my cycle rides home, then I think the business would have been all right for a few months. And if they hadn't have replaced me, then I don't think it would have survived long term. But certainly yeah. in the short to medium term, it would have been fine without me. Well, yeah, it's a great motivator, isn't it? Not wanting or not feeling that you could hold down a real job. I think that's a good reason to make the business work sometimes. You have this plan of making yourself redundant. So was it quite focused in terms of, yes, I'm building this and it will be sold at some point? Selling it is always in the back of your mind. Yeah. And I think any agency owner that says it's not is probably not telling the truth. So selling it, the idea of selling it is always there because ultimately you can create a secure financial future for your family. Yeah. So why wouldn't you do that if you have the opportunity? Yeah. But I think, at least for me, there were three fears that, that stopped me from ever actioning that until right at the very end. So I think the first fear is, what am I going to do next? So when you're running your own business, you're, you're so in it, at least I was, I was so engrossed in it, so incredibly absorbed in it. There was no way I could ever think about what I would do if I wasn't doing that. Yeah. There was no way I could come up with a viable business idea whilst I'm in the midst of this. The business got, I was so absorbed in it that it got to a point in the last few years where I couldn't watch a TV program if I had to have watched the previous episode to know what was going on. So like lighthearted things like yeah. whatever, like Friends, I could watch. But anything like like a box set, I couldn't watch. I just couldn't, I didn't have the headspace for it. So I think the first fear is what will I do if I'm not in this? And this is my identity. Me and Web Credible were one and the same. So the what will I do next is the first fear. I think the other fear is what's everyone going to think of me? Because my team is here and we're quite, we've got a nice culture. If you've got a small business, it's very easy to have a nice culture. Yeah. And my team have, they've bought into my values and the culture I've created and my vision. So are they all just going to hate me? Are they going to be like, well, you're just selling out and we bought into you and look at what you've done. So I think that's a, that was a big worry of mine, yeah. big fear about why I wouldn't make it happen. And I think the third reason for not making it happen, and maybe this is the biggest one, is that after a while, like after about 10 years of doing it, at least for me, it just felt like my prison walls were getting higher and higher. So I created this prison for mm -hmm. myself. And generally, it was a pleasant prison. But for the first 10 years, it was a very low security prison. It, was, <laughs> it felt quite there was a lot of freedom. But for those last five years, I just watched my prison walls get higher and higher. So I think the third fear about 
make trying to make a sale happen is what if it doesn't go ahead and what if no one wants this am i stuck here forever and i think there's that fear of failure as in failure as in if i try to make a, a an acquisition happen and it doesn't and i fail i'm stuck here forever if and knowing that would be awful we talked about these the idea of these prison walls before and building a business that becomes our own trap i think it's yeah. a common feeling whether maybe it's more true in some cases than other but what were those walls for you what what were the things that kept you in the business and stopped you maybe pursuing that exit earlier? You, you, is it, I mean, it's just fear, I think. Mm-hmm. And I should have because I think I did the role for too long. I think I should have left after 10 years. Like most CEOs in big FTSE companies, they last three to five years. Yeah. You come in, you come up with a vision, you do a reorg, you get everything running, and then it's time for someone else with fresh ideas and input. Yeah, and investors are excited by that new CEO, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no one. It's hard. There are some extraordinary people who can do that job, that CEO role for 10, 15, 20 years and really keep reinventing themselves. But that's, I think that's few and far between. And that wasn't me because the last five years of that business, I was really operating from a position of, of survive rather than thrive. And my appetite for risk was diminishing and diminishing as the years went by because what I, the thought of losing the business is was so horrendous. And that was driving some of my decision making. So the, the last five years, we did grow year on year, apart from the, the one year 14, we shrunk a bit. Mm-hmm. And we were profitable every year, apart from year 14, which was our Enos Horribilis. So we did okay, but not as good as we could or should have done. And, and if I'd have stepped down or we'd have done some major real because someone else had taken it over, then perhaps we could have grown more mm-hmm. and become a bigger entity than what we were. Dare we ask about year 14 and what went wrong there? <laughs> or, or is it yeah, well, never mentioned again? <laughs> I don't know how I still got hair on my head and, and that my hair's mostly not great. Oh, because that was I, I failed at that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Year 14 was awful. We had six months of consecutive loss, losing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds. It was, it was just so awful. And that's what triggered me to make, to do the sale yeah. because I was really tired as it was. And then having these six months killed me. I worked harder in year 14 than in any other year. And I worked pretty hard. Yeah. So year 14 was just bonkers hours, just out there trying to just drum up work, selling the dream whilst inside just crying because it's all falling to pieces. Our big problem was that new business fell off a cliff. So our revenue from new business was down by 60%. And it wasn't that we were losing pitches. We just weren't pitching. And this was basically, that we theorized about the reasons. It was basically because user experience had gone very mainstream. So Mm. everyone invaded our space. And we were pitching against the likes of Deloitte and PwC and Accenture now. And they're just, they're cleaning up. Yeah. So it was a very challenging year for us. And so by the end of those six months of continuous losses, I, I was done. I was so, I, I just can't do this anymore. I'm out. And a guy I know who, an M&A guy, messaged me around that time, just someone I vaguely knew. And he said, oh, I've joined a new firm. Let's go for lunch. Let's catch up. So I was like, fine. So we went for lunch. I'm just crying into my soup, just <laughs> sobbing my heart out. It's like, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. Just give it away. I, I don't care. Just I'm done. Yeah. I'm out. And he said, no, look, you've got a really good business. You've had 13 years of really good performance. You've grown every year but one. You've had a profit every year but one. You've got a great brand. You've got a great proposition and a great niche we can do something here so he was like yeah let's have a go at this and see if we can take it on and around that time the the losses started stopping so the the the, the 
first month after our six months of losses, we broke even, which was mm. like, yay, happy days. So me and my leadership team had a you know, massive celebration. We didn't lose any money this yeah. month. You know, we're drinking water, right? Because yeah. there's no money to buy anything. And then we did a lot of work during that six months to turn around the new business situation. And it started paying off because then for the next nine months, and I'm not exaggerating, every single month without fail, our revenue increased. Oh. And our revenue just went up and up and up. And our profit went up and up and up because we had this flex model by that time. So we became quite profitable. So by month nine, after our six months of losses, we recovered all of the money. And on month nine, we were tracking at our highest ever revenue on a 40% net margin. And a week later, after that month finished, a week later, we sold. It was mad. If I don't ask you how you turned around the new beers, then I'm going to be getting abuse on LinkedIn because... (laughs) It's constantly the challenge for a lot of people. I think, yeah. I think particularly agencies who maybe in good years bring in enough, but not more than that. And how, how did you bring that? You said new business drove that. Yeah, yeah. What did you actually do? So well, there, there, there were two things that saved us, to be fair. <laughs> One of them was about stuff we were doing with our clients. One of them was about new business. A year before the losses started, about a year before, we started a client leadership program internally because we could see that the big boys like Accenture were invading our industry. We knew we had to up the ante because yeah. anytime we wanted to upsell to a client or if there was a difficult conversation to be had with a client or we wanted to really inspire or influence a client, usually someone from my senior team would get involved and it wasn't very scalable. And we'd have team members out there with clients and they'd come back saying, yeah, clients are really happy. We're just going to do a bit of rework for about a week and then we'll crack on. It's like, Sorry. Three of you are going to be unbillable for the next week. And you get two or three of those a month and, and, and that's your profit. So we started this client leadership program just on a whim to see what would happen. And it was bonkers successful. So the following year, we saw a 35% uplift in revenue from our clients. So whilst we had this 60% decline in revenue from new business, what was going on with our existing accounts, our clients, was just flying. Mm. And because of that, we didn't go bankrupt. So if we didn't have that additional 35% revenue from our clients, we would have gone out of business. So that's the first thing that saved us. We were still hemorrhaging cash. We had to turn around a new business. We'd never... So the second thing we did was we started a proactive new business initiative. And we'd never done this before. For 13 years, we'd relied on just marketing and word of mouth and mostly inbound inquiries, very little outbound. So we had to start work out, how do you do outbound new biz? And we had an advisory board who were who were astonishingly helpful. Just they really stepped up. They weren't meant to do that much time with us. It was about two or three days a year. Yeah. But they got involved a lot and they really helped us with this. So we had some really amazing people. We had Karen Blackett, who runs WPP for the UK. We had her on it. Yeah. All she talks about is chutzpah. She's like, you need to have more chutzpah. <laughs> There's a lot more than that. And then we had Ian Milner who runs Iris. He started yeah. Iris, the marketing agency in his kitchen. Oh, there are thousands of people now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they really stepped up to help us with this. And so we did all of these proactive new business activities. The main one that we did, though, that, that had the biggest impact was we started a couple of communities. We started a community for digital leaders within brands and a community for design leaders in brands. It was a kind of closed community, yeah. invite only, and it was people who were our target client basically. And those communities were very successful. We had about 150 active members and we'd run round tables for them every month. So we'd get about 30 people in our office every month across the two communities. And and it worked. It worked incredibly well. So off the back of that, because we're in contact with these people all the time, yeah. we won work with Tesco, Vodafone, who else? RBS, Visa, like big brands. And here's the thing, we didn't have to pitch for any of them. 
we had a decent client list before then. So that was okay. But it was just the fact that we could, with all of them, they were like, we got this need, just come in and do this project. Let's see how it goes. And then let's build on it from there. Because they don't want to do pitches. Pitches is a waste of time for everyone. You get three people to come in and do the charade and wave their jazz hands. And like I said, it doesn't really matter which one you choose. They're all going to be fine as long as you do a bit of background checks if you know what you're doing so they're just like just come in do this work if you do well we'll talk more and generally we did do good work so it was all good so yeah we turned around our new business challenge which so you you asked a question right at the start about resilience like i found levels of resilience during those six months that i never knew existed yeah and when i look back on the 15 years by far and away the proud my proudest thing by far and away is getting us out of that hole of those six months because I was tired anyway. I was ready to throw the towel in and I don't know how, I don't know how I found the energy to do it, but I somehow did. And then we came out of it and then some, it was astonishing. It was like, it's a roller coaster ride. And then it's right towards the end. Let's have the biggest dip in the roller coaster imaginable. Let's get down into the depths of hell. (laughs) And then it's let's come out of there and go up to the best possible place you've ever been as a business. And then we'll sell. Fantastic. So yeah, it was mad. I'll, I'll come back to another point you mentioned then. So you fix a new biz, but you also mentioned the flex model. So we had, we downsized during that time. So we went down from around 30 odd to around 25 odd and then cut costs. Everything got cut yeah. during that time. There, there was not a single penny to spend on anything. And, and then we talked about a flex model anyway. We had freelancers and people who would come and go and do stuff for us. So we set up this flex model and it was very successful because we did it in such a way. So there would be always be a permi member of the team running the, the, the client work who would then buddy up with one of the freelancers. And because we had so much time on our hands during these six months, well, certainly my operational type people, they just created the flex model. And we had so much time to make it really good. Yeah. We onboarded people really nicely to the business in terms of what it means to be at Web Credible in for how we deliver work and how we communicate with clients. And we got people in a good way so that we would, we could, we went up to about 40 people at one point. So a huge amount of freelancers working and it was all fine because my wonderful MD made all this work. Yeah. When you were bringing about all this change, both in terms of tackling new biz in a different way, bringing the flex model. Were you in mind to sell at that point already? You'd been through this low. Was this in your mind, I'm going to fix this and sell it? Or was this fix it and the idea came after? It wasn't it was just it wasn't really the yeah. idea. It just happened. It was like Damien, this M&A guy, yeah. who just happened to contact me. It just serendipity. He just contacted mm. me at the right time. Yeah. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. And he was like, it's fine. Let, let me sell yeah. it. And I was like, fine. I said, I was just like, just give it away. But it was quite funny. So, so he got going. Well, he started, he was, we were just working things out. So I thought, look, if I'm going to do this, then the, let me, let me chat to a couple of other M&A guys yep. just to check. So I got, I think three M&A guys in kind of the usual suspects from the agency space. And I think that they all, let, let me tell you a story about one of them. Cause this sums up the attitude <laughs> with all three of them. So one of them came in, a really nice guy and comes in a bit all enthusiastic. When you go pitch, you're full of enthusiasm yeah. and energy. It's the best version of you. So he comes in being the best version of him for 10 minutes, asking questions, being all like really into it. And he says, what about the financials? Let me know where you're at with those. And I said, things aren't so good with those. We've been, we've run at a loss for the last six months. We've hemorrhaged hundreds of thousands of cash and our revenue is down about 15% from last year. And oh, it was hilarious. It was like he was a beat, like one of those 
beach balls, right? And I just put a pin in him because <laughs> he went from all this massive enthusiasm and I could always see his demeanor change. Uh-huh. Like I just put this pin in him and it just went, <laughs> and then he stayed for a few more minutes and then was like, well, yeah, I can't do anything here. And it was the same with all the guys I met. They were like, nah, you got to get your profit up. And it's quite interesting because all the M&A type guys, they all talk about EBITDA and profit as being the the thing. Yeah. But we sold on a multiple of revenue. There was no profit. You couldn't yeah. sell on a multiple of profit. And I think, I don't know, based on my experience, and this is just based on one person's journey, it feels like the M&A guys are perhaps lacking in creativity in terms of how it should in terms of what the agency needs to be able to sell because we had no profit that year and we still sold for an amount that I was happy with. This is becoming a, a current theme in these conversations that no one fits the pattern. That's certainly the impression I get from people who are listening and giving me feedback. They're actually enjoying hearing a different side to what the, some of the established narrative around it is. Look, you're, the value of your business is whatever for the acquirer, whatever the value can add to them. So in our case, our acquisition was really successful for Invica, the company that bought us, because it gave them what they needed. So they're not buying us for our profit. They're buying us for our proposition and our fit and how they had a gap that was like almost exactly the size of yeah. us in terms of being able to do user experience and research and design and strategy. So we come in And they basically took our proposition and put that front and center of their business and said, this is what we do. And by the way, we can build it for you as well. We are strategic partners to you. And it took their business forward in a way that they wouldn't have been able to without our proposition. And then they sold the business to have us for a decent chunk of money a couple of years ago. So they came as an introduction from... The crying in the soup conversation. They just came out directly from that. that yeah, yeah, so crying in my soup. And so then Damien and his team get to work and go out and send out a teaser to lots yeah. of businesses. And I help them because I know the industry well. Yeah. So I could guide them in places to look and the sort of businesses that I thought would be interesting. Because for me, it was always going to be a development company. We chatted to yeah. lots of businesses. But for me, the fit, the value creation was with a development company. Because no one's going to buy us for our profit because there ain't none. Yeah. And, and no one buys you for your profit anyway, unless you're up at minimum half a mil to a million yeah. EBITDA, right? If you're tracking below a million profit, it's unlikely anyone's going to buy you for that. You need a company where you're going to be a good fit. And for me, it was obvious it was going to be a development agency. You said there was a web credible shaped hole in their business. What yeah, was it was it just their size. They were, yeah. yeah, it was the size of their business. They were about maybe five times larger than us. And your development teams need to be bigger than your UX teams. Yeah. They're about five times larger than us, independent agency headquarters in london like us so we can move in together and they wanted our proposition to be front and center of the business which was quite interesting and the other we had three final offers and we went with them one of the offers it was like an aqua hire they just wanted ux and they were almost going to just break us up and disperse us across the business so that didn't seem right and then the other offer would have been a good one the one thing that didn't attract me to the other offer was they were they had offices in the north a couple of offices can't remember where exactly. And so they, we were going to be the London hub. And I just, after 15 years, I, I needed a change. I needed something different. Yeah. And so that just felt to me like it's going to be more of the same, but with some overlords in the north of England. Yeah. And they, were, they were very nice people as well. They were independent business. But Vika office seemed nice because we'd move in together. I would then take a role within the bigger business on the board. And that, that appealed to me that I personally could do something different. Yeah. 
How much were you involved kind of post-sale? Was there a big tie-in? Oh, no, there was no tie-in. So I was, originally they talked about doing an earn-out three years, and then I said to them, we can't integrate. The value here is integration. Yeah. So if you give us an earn-out, we stay separate. So they thought about it and came back and said, okay, we'll do a one-year earn-out. And I said, that's fine. But just so you know, you're pointing me in this direction. And the direction you're pointing me in for the next year is to hit this revenue target. And the value here is integration. You're pointing me away from integration. So that's fine. We can mm. just stay separate for a year. and then. But anything you want me to do to integrate, if I don't believe it's going to help me hit that revenue target, you're literally disincentivizing me from doing that. So they thought about it a bit more and they said, look, let's just integrate. That's where the value is at. And so you couldn't do a, an earnout if there's integration. And it was 100% the right decision. Yeah. Like it was absolutely, I wasn't tied in, but I don't, to be honest, as we start integrating and merging, there, there wasn't really a role for me anyway yeah. at WebCredible because I wasn't involved day to day. The cheerleader of the business and the face of the business and the strategy, but I didn't need to do that you anymore once we started integrating. So it was, there was no earnout, but it was, which people sometimes when I say are like, oh, wow, that sounds amazing. But it was, it was a hundred percent the right decision on their part because yeah. it meant we could integrate and start adding value to both our clients by offering each other services and, and become one as a business. How did that work in practice then? When that, so you were still involved for integration and was that kind of? Yeah, but to be honest, my MD is much better at most things than me or was. So, um, she just led on it. So I didn't, to be honest, I didn't have much to do with. So the whole due diligence process. We had this amazing, I guess she was my assistant, but she was more of like a chief of staff. So we had this amazing chief of staff and a, a really great finance manager. They just kind of got on with it and did all the due diligence nice. for me. And they put lo lots of time in, so I was very appreciative to them. And then once we, after we sold, my MD was the one who did the, the integration work and did a, a wonderful, wonderful job of it. So the nuts and bolts of it all, I actually wasn't that involved in it. So in the run-up to the sale for the few months you know, where it really started kind of yeah. getting serious. I should have been really busy, but the business was flying, yeah. absolutely flying. So I didn't have to like kill myself to, you know, drum up work or anything because it was just flying. And the kind of all the due diligence stuff was just kind of happening. So I was expecting that if it was all going to go ahead, that I would be bonkers. Oh, wow, that sounds amazing. But it was it was 100% the right decision on their part because yeah. it meant we could integrate and start adding value to both our clients by offering each other services and, and become one as a business. So how did that work in practice then? Were we still involved for integration? And was that kind of... Yeah, but to be honest, my MD is much better at most things than me, or was. She just led on it. I didn't have much to do with... So the whole due diligence process, we had this amazing... I guess she was my assistant, but she was more of like a chief of staff. So we had this amazing chief of staff and a, a really great finance manager, they just got on with it and did all the due diligence nice. for me. And they put lo lots of time in, so I was very appreciative to them. And then once we, after we sold, my MD was the one who did the integration work and did a, a wonderful job of it. So the nuts and bolts of it all, I actually wasn't that involved in it. So in the run-up to the sale for the few months where it really started yeah. getting serious, I should have been really busy, but... The business was flying, yeah. absolutely flying. So I didn't have to kill myself to drum up work or anything because it was just flying. And the kind of all the due diligence stuff was just happening. So I was expecting that if it was all going to go ahead, that I would be bonkers busy. But that's fine. It's a few months and there's a yeah. happy ending at the end of it. But I really wasn't that busy. And then after we integrated, I didn't really have much to do with the integration either. 
you obviously did a very good job of making yourself redundant in the previous years. What a I was very lucky because towards the end, I, I really struggled to get a, a really good leadership team. But for the last, so for 12 years, I never had a particularly strong leadership team. I had a brilliant MD in the middle, another, mm-hmm. a different MD. So me and him ran the business very well, had a really strong partnership. And then he left and I got another MD in and we reorged the leadership team and that was for the last two or three years. And that was a very strong leadership team. That was the first time yeah. I ever got a leadership team that I would say was truly high performing. And yeah, so they, they did most of the integration. I wasn't involved in it. To be honest, it was quite interesting because after we sold, and it was almost within a day or two, I had nothing left. When like in the run up to Christmas, <laughs> we, all, we all just like limping yeah. to Christmas, yeah. right? And we get to Christmas and the adrenaline drops and we all get sick. Yeah. And we're always ill over Christmas. It was like that. I had 15 years worth of adrenaline and that last, and then the six months that almost killed me. And after we sold, it was like the adrenaline dropped. I had nothing left. I just had nothing left in the tank. So you didn't have an earn out. How involved were Mm. you from the moment of the sale onwards? How how long was the relationship then? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. To be honest, it was business as usual for probably the first six or six or eight months because we didn't integrate with them. We didn't move in with them till about eight months so it was mostly just business as usual, albeit we can't do any strategic initiatives because we're about to integrate with yeah. them. So a big part of what I did, which was the strategy and the kind of face of the business stuff, is like slowed down a bit. So I was still busy, but I was less busy than before. But it, as I said, it wasn't me working on the integration. It was my MD and, and a couple of other guys in the leadership team. I wasn't too involved in that. We then moved in with them, integrated properly. And to be honest, there wasn't much much for me to do after that we talked me and my new boss talked about potential role for me in the business i wasn't really interested because they were a bigger business you have to specialize a bit more yeah so the kind of the stuff that was available for me was mostly around sales and new business no i like doing new business but i don't want that to be my 100 percent role yeah and that really would have been almost exclusively what i was doing that that didn't interest me so i there wasn't really a role for me to be fair, once we integrated. So I gradually wound down for the next eight months and had a lot of thinking time to work out what I was going to do next and come up with the, the next idea. Because like I said, while I was in it, I had no idea what to do next. No, so once we integrated, I knew I wasn't going to stay. I knew it, it wasn't right for me and there wasn't really a role for me there anyway. And I, I was fine with that. I, like I said, I was tired. So I had almost like a year of rest I'm still working but it was like emotional rest because i wasn't really in charge of much i didn't have too much responsibility anymore so i recovered that year started thinking about what's next and then at the end of that year i, I left do you think that year was useful to you in terms of you mentioned the identity wrapped up with the company which is something i yeah. really felt and that transition was the gradual wind down you feel that was yeah. quite you it's exactly what it is yeah it's exactly that. It's incredibly emotional, like separating yourself from you know this thing that yeah. you've created. And I, I was happy to do so, and I wanted to do so. And it's it's emotional. I had a, re- a big range of emotions. The day that we sold, my emotions were crazy. I was crying. I was all over the place. Because yeah. it's just, it's what I think for me, the best thing about selling is this feeling of, I did it. I'm done. I created something. And I nurtured it and I grew it and it became this entity. And there's been all these amazing things happening that time. All these people I've met and like marriages. There are three marriages that happened as a result of people meeting in my business. All these yeah. like, friendships that have create, been created as a result of you know, the business I created. 
So it's, it's incredibly rewarding to see the impact on the people my business brought together. And that's really lovely feeling. So when you sell, it's, I've done it now. The, the cycle's complete. I've finished. And you never get a sense of completion when you're in it, when you're running your business, no yeah. matter how successful you are on paper, it's never finished. So leaving gave me a real sense of completion and also the ability to finally feel proud of what I've done. Because when you're in it, at least for me, I was never not even for a second ever proud of what I'd created because all I could think about was what needed doing and what problems needed solving and what needed improving. And now I, I look back with genuine pride at what I and my team were able to Growth do. Growth mindset, isn't it? it? It's the fact mm. that we don't sit back and go, oh, everything's amazing. Look how good I've done. I think the second we do that, we stop improving. We stop pushing. And I think it's that drive. Yeah, that but makes- I think it, I think we should do it. And so yeah. I think if you are running an agency, you should devote 5 to 10% of your time to reflect back on what you've achieved and to be proud. And you do that maybe with your leadership team yeah. and you just review on what the successes have been the last month or two. And you just, you have a conversation, maybe just for 30 minutes, where all you talk about is the great things that have happened that month. I think it's a great idea. I think, and then you go back to normal. (laughs) (laughs) But just for thirty minutes a month, just to take that time to be like, what we're doing is amazing because it is. There's always stuff to deal with. There's always problems, and you're always doing really great things. And it shouldn't have to. For me, it ended up being that I had to sell in order to suddenly appreciate what I'd done. But actually, you should be taking that time to to genuinely congratulate yourself and appreciate yourself on a regular basis, five, 10% of the time. That's all. Where do you think that sense of completion came for you? Was it when deal was done and you moved into salaried role or was it no, when that- when, when, deal, when deal was done. Yeah. The, the day we signed, I'll never forget it. We went into sign and me and my leadership team all came because they had some shares as well. I was the majority shareholder by a long way. So they were getting, they were getting a bonus, yeah. something that was helpful for them, but it wasn't life-changing for them at all. And for me, it was. I was the only one getting a life-changing sum. And we sold, sorry, we signed. And then I remember it so clearly. We went out this, we left this listers office, the four of us, and it was a very sunny evening. It was a lovely evening. We were walking on the street and the guys in my leadership team were jumping up and down with excitement. Like just, they were just buzzing and they were like hugging each other and hugging me. And they kept saying to me like, well done. Thank you so much. Thank you for bringing us on this journey. And I'll never forget that moment. I was so overwhelmed by their reaction. I remember I just stopped in the street. And so they stopped as well. I remember saying to them, like, guys, like, what do you mean? Thank you to me. You will never understand the gratitude I have to each and each of you. You, you saying thank you to me is utterly wrong. The amount of gratitude I have towards you is so incredibly enormous. And I just remember being overwhelmed by their reaction and how joyful they were. It was bonkers. And then the next morning, oh, then we went out to a bar and my M&A guy, Damien, joined us. And we got, we drank lots of champagne and got drunk. Obviously, I was paying. And then it felt like the right thing to do. And then I did. Then me and my leadership team went out with our partners and I took them all out to a posh restaurant to say thank you. Did a number of things to hopefully demonstrate my gratitude. And also for some of the people who helped in the sale who didn't have shares, I I did some things for them as well to show my gratitude. Mm -hmm. But then the next morning, after we went out and got drunk and drunk champagne, we, we went in the office and we had our you know, client leadership skills that morning, as yeah. luck would have it. So we just hijacked that session. So we had to get in the office for seven so we could <laughs> like work on our presentation because we were going to work on it that night, but we just drunk champagne and got drunk. So we had to go in with hangovers and work on our, our messaging. We, we knew roughly what we were yeah. going to say, but 
just putting it together. And then I remember I stood up and me and my MD did the presentation to the company about the news. And oh my God, I could barely speak because I was crying. And then we told everyone, and again, this is one of my big fears. What's the team going to think? Are they going to hate me and hate us? And again, I was very overwhelmed with the reaction because people were generally, okay, sounds good. Yeah. Because they were like, generally, we trust you guys as a leadership. We trust what you're doing. You generally do right by us. So we believe in this. So we'll support it. And we had very little churn. No, No one left the business as a result of this. So again, I was very taken aback by the very positive response from everyone. So that was the first time some of the team became aware of... Oh, none of them knew. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because if it fell through, then like for me, it was like, we we don't announce it until it's 100% sure that it's happening. And you're only 100% sure when when the signing happens. It's like buying a house. Anyone can pull out at any time. And I remember during the processes, we're getting near the end when they could have pulled out at any time. And I remember thinking to myself, if they do pull out, if this doesn't happen... I'm not sure I can come back from that. Having had those horrendous six months and then obviously building it back up, I don't think I can do this anymore. If this doesn't go ahead, I genuinely, I was like, I don't know what I will do if this doesn't go ahead. So deal done. A year of slowing it down and getting the work done, but the workload decreasing slowly. Then what's next? What was it? Another vision quest on a train? New idea? (laughs) (laughs) It was taking an existing idea. So the client leadership program that we launched was incredibly successful, not just in terms of the revenue that we got from our accounts, but in terms of how it brought the team together. We all went on a journey together. Mm -hmm. The skills that we taught, it was all around emotional intelligence, people skills, and about raising self-awareness. So everyone went on this journey of discovering more about themselves and getting new skills that, yeah, they can use with clients, but they could also use with each other. Mm. So people's relationships were flourishing because they were able to have difficult conversations with each other and, and come to win outcomes. And then they were using these skills at home in their personal lives as well. Like I had one wonderful story from this girl with this project manager who was a wonderful project manager, and she'd never done a presentation in her career ever. She was petrified yeah. of it. And as part of the skills training, we did presentation skills and everyone had to do it. We went around the whole company over the course of a year and everyone had to present in front of the, the business. So she did her presentation in front of the business absolutely nailed it did a brilliant job and a month later she got married and she did a presentation at her own wedding she stood up and did a speech in front of everyone oh wow and it was just this magical story that she would never have done that if it wasn't for what we'd done at work so this client leadership skills program was so wonderful it was such a a great thing that as i was then started realizing i'm going to go and what do i do next and chatting to other agency buddies of mine and it turns out everyone's got this problem that if you want to upsell to clients, have difficult conversations, really lead them, inspire them, then it's usually the senior team that have to get involved. So I thought, I've solved that problem. I really solved that problem. And we really noticed after we merged and came together as two businesses, we you could see the difference in our ability to lead and inspire clients compared yeah. to the other company. But don't get me wrong, they were all good, just standard, but our level was just off the charts. So I started a new business called Team Stoker. And now we run this program to other businesses, to other mostly agencies, mm-hmm. about 80% agencies, 20% brands. And the business has been going for just over three years now. We've had about 40 clients go through the program. That's going all right. So it's, I guess it's now, how would you describe it? Training and consultancy? Training alone, bit of both? It's just a behavior change program that we run. So there's three parts to it. There's the training, there's 
coaching as well, one-on-one executive mm-hmm. coaching, and then there's embedding the skills. So we do an hour worth of training every two weeks over Zoom, very interactive, but it's only one hour. So it fits in yeah. around your client work. And then we do one-on-one executive coaching with a more senior team to help them really like deep dive into yeah. that self-awareness. And the third part's about embedding the skills. There's a whole kind of community aspect that we do to make sure that everyone's putting their skills into practice, talking about them and bringing about real behavior change. But that's generally how it works. So if we have an agency leader who obviously we have quite a few listen who, as you say, have a, their eye on a sale at some point. Maybe yeah. they're thinking about, oh, how do I get more profitable between now and when that happens? They've heard you say this was instrumental in a 35% uptick in billing for existing clients. And I'm thinking, I yeah, want a bit of that. Yeah. Who, what, what kind of agency are you working, agencies are you working with on this? Who's it a good fit for? It's any size agency, really. So our biggest client is Mindshare, and they're 11,000 people. Yeah. And then I think yeah. our smallest no. client was around 10 people. Yeah. So we didn't put 11,000 people on Mindshare <laughs> through the program. Yeah, you wouldn't have time to meet today. But it's all different sizes. For smaller agencies, they go on a program with other small agencies. Mm-hmm. And then for agencies who are 40, 50 people in, in the hundreds and maybe even in the thousands, they do their own program. So it's any agency. It's a problem that every agency faces. And then, mm-hmm. as I said, what for me, what's lovely about the program is, A, you get these new skills, but B, you go on the journey together. And that's why you bring about real behavior change because everyone does it together. So the conversation keeps going in between the sessions. People are putting this stuff into practice. They're learning. They're building on what they're learning. I like it. I think it's a really nice program. I often ask people on this whether they would think about starting another agency. But the slightly different take on that is how do you find the training and coaching business compared with agency business how does it fit for you you're an agency guy worth 15 years i I would never go back to agency world because i've done that and it was great it was a wonderful journey and i would never go back to it so i wanted to start a business where i had more certainty of kind of future revenues these programs are six nine months long and whilst our clients are free to leave at any time they generally stay on because it's good stuff so i wanted Longer programs. I didn't want to be pitching anymore. I'm done with pitching. I'm done with going in and waving my jazz hands and all the reasons why you should choose us when, as I said, it generally doesn't matter which business you choose. We're all so similar nowadays. So I didn't want to do pitching anymore. I wanted a bit more certainty around forecasting with revenue. And then also what I quite like about, this is going to sound very selfish, but what I quite like about this is I get to be an uncle rather than a father. So when you're have people reporting into you. Obviously, there are lots of lovely moments when it comes to managing and leading people. And often on a day-to-day basis, there's a lot of stuff to deal with, Yeah. right? So whereas what I do nowadays, for me anyway, is quite nice. I get the reward and the satisfaction from helping people to develop. But you know what? When that when that kid has a tantrum or the nappy knee's changing, I get to hand that kid back to the parents. <laughs> I love that. Uncle, not a father. I think that's, that's brilliant. My other question, which I like to finish on, is that... If you could go back and talk to yourself at some point during that 15-year journey, knowing how things ended up now, what benefit of hindsight would you give yourself? It's a good question. I would just say, hang on in there. Just persevere. Like, you've got this. And also, you're not curing cancer here. Yeah. We get so stressed out running our agencies. There's all these things that we're doing, but we're not curing cancer. We're (laughs) helping a client to maybe get higher up in Google or convert more leads or whatever it might be. Chill. Everything's always fine. Everything always works out in the end. And just persevere. Just keep going. I think that's what I'd say to myself. I mean, I did, like I said, especially that 
six month downturn. I found I don't know how I found those levels of resilience. I, I don't know. To this day, I have no idea how I managed to keep going. Clinton, I think people are going to really enjoy this. I really appreciate you coming on. It's taken a little while. I think the universe and my hardware conspired against getting you on for a while, but (laughs) absolutely worth my perseverance in in making sure that happens. So thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. It's been great. What a great conversation. Thank you so much, Trenton. If you'd like to get hold of Trenton, you can do so at teamsterker.com. You'll also find links to that website and Trenton's LinkedIn profile in the show notes at howtosellanagency.com. That's also the place to look should you want to get hold of me, whether that's to talk about how I support agency owners as an advisor, mentor, and non-exec, or about coming on the podcast itself, or in fact, anything else. Drawing close to the end of my planned schedule for this podcast now, but do watch out for the next episode where I'm going to break from the format just a bit. There may also be a special one-off episode by kind of vaguely popular demand coming out around April. I'll leave it to your imagination to figure out what that one might be. For now, though, thanks for listening to How to Sell an Agency. Hold up. 